Heavenly Father, it is a sacred moment, a holy moment, when we have the opportunity to come and to hear your words and to respond. And so I just pray right now as we enter into this time of, uh, where we, we've already responded to who you are through singing and through fellowship with one another, that now is the point of your word, we respond in obedience and in faith. We thank you that we have the opportunity just to get this in-depth glimpse into your own last conversation with your disciples. And I just pray that as we think about our own journey of discipleship and our own following of you, God, that we would take heart, just as the disciples had to take heart. Would you help us to trust you entirely? Would you show us this morning the things in our life that, while we say we trust you, we've been actually putting the object of our faith on other things. Would you help us to see that this morning? And I pray that as we see those things, we return again to our trust in you. We pray not only for our congregation this morning as your word is proclaimed, but also for the congregations around this city. So many great churches who love you and are worshiping you. We pray that you would be at work in all of the churches here in San Francisco. That your glory would be known, that your name would be proclaimed today, and that people would respond in obedience and faith. We love you and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. We thank you that no person in this room is here by chance, but that they are here by your design. So would you help us to hear from you and be changed? It's in the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to grab it, just like always. You know, we're going to be reading that passage that Tom just read aloud. It's John chapter 14, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. So, Go ahead and make it right there. If you don't have a Bible, as always, please feel free to take and use it. You can bring home one of the Bibles that's in a pew that we provided for you. I believe if you're up top, there's also some under the pews that you can grab and uh, use. The book of John that we're studying is the fourth book of the New Testament. So you're going to be looking for Matthew, Mark, Luke. You're going to find John to get the Acts and Romans. You've gone a little bit too far. This morning we are continuing our sermon series called The Last Night. Which, if you've been with us, you know is dealing with this in-depth look of Jesus' last night with his disciples right before his crucifixion and his resurrection. As we begin, I want you to kind of put yourself in the place of these disciples after they've been on this incredible whirlwind of following Jesus. For three years, they had left their families and their jobs and their homes to follow Jesus wherever he went. These disciples, they saw Jesus heal individuals. They, they saw him calm storms. They, they saw him cast out demons. They saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Okay, imagine what that must have been like. They saw Jesus teach with an authority unlike anything the world had ever seen. Jesus was clearly different. And the Bible tells us that as they were coming to this last supper, as they were entering into Jerusalem, that the crowds gathered around Jesus. That everyone, as they went into Jerusalem, they were waving palm branches. They're shouting, Hosanna. Imagine the, the, the feelings that they must have had walking through those crowds, knowing this is the moment. This is it. This is the time where Jesus is going to make his Messiahship known to the world. This is when he's going to take over the Roman authorities and he's going to establish Israel and bring it back to its place of glory and power. That's what the disciples saw. 
You know, as they came to this last night with Jesus, Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus doesn't take the position of a king. He takes the position of a humble servant and he lays down and he washes the feet of the disciples. Something that the Bible said shocked them. They couldn't believe what he was doing. He then turned to them and said, I'm about to depart from you. And even worse than that, one of you is going to betray me. He then looked at the leader of the disciples, Peter, and he said, Peter, even you are going to deny me three times before this night is done. Now put yourself in the place of the disciples. Those are your expectations. Jesus is about to be Messiah. He's about to do all these amazing things. But instead, Jesus says, I'm about to leave. Verse 1 is coming. This passage says that all of this news left the disciples with what the Bible calls troubled hearts. And troubled hearts. That word troubled means shaken or stirred up. The disciples were visibly shaken by the person that they had given their life for, that they had left everything for, was about to seemingly desert them. They didn't understand what's going on. They were confused. They had pain. They were, they were discouraged. They had grief. All of these emotions are welling within their hearts. Sadly, in a world that is broken by the curse of sin, I think we can all agree in this room that troubled hearts are a very common human condition. Are they not? I would imagine, because I've been praying for you this week, I would imagine that there are many of you in this room that came in with a very troubled heart. If you're to be honest, you'd say, I, I came in with a troubled heart. Some of you are, are questioning, you're confused. Why are these circumstances happening in my life that we're not some of you came into this room with a troubled heart. You've been shaken. Your marriage is shaken. You came out ready to give up on that marriage. Or perhaps even another broken relationship in your life. Some of you are shaken by things that are happening in your work. Some of you are shaken by things that are happening in your family. Some of you, your students, shaken by things that are happening in school. Some of you are spinning because of financial issues. The point in all of that is to say this. All of us at some point and in some season have experienced the same thing the disciples had in that night. You had a troubled heart. You were shaken, you were stirred up to your core. And then you look at Jesus. If anybody on this night should have been focused on his own troubled heart, should it not have been Jesus? We know that Jesus knew everything that was coming. Jesus knew he was about to be mocked and ridiculed and beaten and he was going to die the most excruciating death possible, the death on the even more than that, he knew he was going to bear the penalty, not of just of, of their sins, but of the world's sins. He's going to face the wrath of God for us. I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus, I would have been looking at my disciples and saying, Really, guys? You guys are troubled? Can't you comfort me a little bit here? Can't you support me? I'm about to die for you. But thankfully, I am not Jesus. And that's not what Jesus does in this passage. Jesus knows what is going on in the heart of every single one of his disciples, and that's what he speaks to today. More than anything else this morning, what I want you to understand in this passage is that Jesus knows what is going on in your heart. He knows the anxieties you're facing today. He knows your fears. He knows your confusion. And today he gives us an answer to the trouble. What do we do about our trouble? Well, we see the answer to that simply in verse 1. Let's read it together. He says this, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now I want us to pause there because that really, we're going to talk about a lot more, but that is the heart of Jesus' answer. Jesus is saying here, the stability of your heart is always going to be directly related to the object of your faith. When he says believe in God, believe also in me, he's not saying believe that there is a God. He's not saying believe that I don't know. He's standing in front of the disciples. They know he's true. That's not what he's saying. That word believe is a word that signifies complete, absolute trust. And so he's looking at it and saying, you, the only source of a stable heart is to put your trust in God. The reason for that is if you think about it, I mean, just play this out in your own mind. Every other thing that we put our trust in is not stable. It's, it's changing. It's always swaying. If, if it's going well, then yeah, my heart's good. If it's not normal, my heart's not good. Anymore. Think about that. Your job, your job is fleeting. Your job's not going to be here forever. Your relationships in your life are going to be here forever. Your health, I'm sorry to tell you, not going to be here forever. And the problem is when we put the, our heart, the, the condition of our heart, on those things, none of them are stable. But God is different than all those things. The Bible tells us that God is before all things, and He created all things, and He sustains all things, and He knows all things, and that God never changes. Okay? So when Jesus looks at it, he says, put your trust in God. The Bible over and over makes that expression. Put your trust in God alone. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. This was not new to the disciples. But what makes Jesus stand out is what he says right after that. He says what? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, this is one of those stunning moments where Jesus makes very clear that he is not just another moral teacher. He's not just a religious leader. He's not just a prophet. In this passage, Jesus is affirming his deity. He's placing himself on par with God the Father as an appropriate object of the disciples. Right? This is significant. He says, believe in God. You know this. You trust in God in an abstract way. He says, now believe in me, God. In his flesh. Trust in me. He goes further into this verse 8. If you go down to verse 8, come back to the others in a second. Philip said to the Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say here, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This language of Jesus being in the Father, the Father being in Jesus, is trying to portray to us the complete unity of God the Son and God the Father. In John 10, 10, he makes this very clear. In John 10, 30, he says it directly. He says, I and the Father are one. And so he looks at the disciples and he says, when you see me, you see the Father. It doesn't mean that God the Father and God the Son are not distinct in any way. It doesn't erase their distinction. But he says they're so completely unified that when you see one, you see the others. That's why Hebrew 1 says this. It says, long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1 goes on to say, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So what is happening here is Jesus is looking at his disciples on his last time. He says, hey, things are about to get wrong. I'm about to go to the cross. It's going to look like putting your faith in me is, is foolish. It's going to look like the end has come. So he says, I promise the disciples that's not the case. You believe in God, believe also in me. I am the source of a saving heart. In the midst of all the trials, all of these disciples are going to die for Jesus. They're going to be tortured. They're going to be ridiculed. Horrible things are going to happen the rest of their lives. He says, trust in me. I'm the only source of a stable heart. I'm the only one worthy to be the foundation of the body. This is a massive claim, my friends. But he backs it up. And that's what I want us to look at. Because in verse 2, he tells us why we can put our trust in him. Verse 2. <coughs> says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am. So if you think about this idea of trusting in Jesus, what does that mean? Well, in moments where your troubled heart is getting the best of what do we do about that? Number one, we trust in the promise of Jesus. When your hearts are troubled, when you're being swayed by the circumstances of your life, what do we need to do? You trust in the promises of Jesus. This is an incredible promise. I wonder, in this room, how many of you love to travel? Just raise your hand. A good amount of you love to travel. I, I enjoy travel. I enjoy going to different places, seeing new things. But here's what anybody that travels a lot is going to tell No matter how amazing a place is when you're traveling, the longer you travel, you get to a point where you say, you know what? As amazing as this is, I'm ready to be home. Right? I'm ready to go to this place I call home. I'm ready to, to be in my own bed. I'm ready to eat food out of my own refrigerator. I'm ready to sit in my dining table, sit on my couch. I'm ready to be around the people familiar. I'm ready to be home. You see, I believe that within each one of us, doesn't matter who you are this way, I believe in each one there's this longing for this sense of home. And this sense of home is about much more than a house, okay? A sense of home is this place of belonging, right? It's a place of feeling love and acceptance. It's a place where you're content, you're satisfied, where you have complete rest. I think some of us have had glimpses of, of home in our lives. Some of us can think, I haven't had anywhere near that in my home. I think there's this longing for each one of us. And here's the reality it doesn't matter how big your house is, it doesn't matter how comfortable it is, or how secure it is, it doesn't matter how much food you have, how many people are in, how many possessions you have in your house. None of our earthly houses fulfill fully this need this sense of contentment and peace and rest. We long for it, but we can't seem to find it. If you've ever read the Old Testament, there's a book called Ecclesiastes that is the story of, of one man's quest for this sense of calm, for this place of meaning and identity to make them solid. Solomon was the richest man in the world. He had everything. He had the largest houses. 
He had the best food. He had a lot of lives. He had all sorts of these things that the world said. Go and get He had education. He had wisdom. He had books. He had learning. He had experiences. And then what does he say at the end of that? Vanity of vanity. All of this is vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. Solomon could not find what he was looking for. He could not find a home for his heart in all of those things. It's this reality that C.S. Lewis describes in one of his books when he says this. It'll be on the screen. He's a great author who never read C.S. Lewis. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You not found that to be true? Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's thinking all the money and power and success and the houses and sex and vacations and experiences that we pour our lives into. If none of that provides our heart with a home, then it only makes sense that we were designed for something greater than all of those things. The way that Ecclesiastes puts it, he says that God has put eternity in the heart of man. There's a longing within each one of us for God, for for this eternal home, this eternal rest, this eternal joy within that nothing in this world can satisfy. But here's the good news of what Jesus says, and this is why it's comforting. Jesus says to his disciples, I am going to prepare that place for you. That place that your heart longs for, I am going to prepare that place for you. So take heart, trust in me. I think there's two misconceptions that I just want to clarify about that first. I think sometimes um, if you read an older version of the Bible, that, that verse, instead of translating dwelling or place, they'll translate mansions. And so what happens is I think some of us, we have this, this picture of heaven, and we think, well, uh, heaven's just a place of these massive mansions and all the, the finest amenities the world has to offer. That's heaven. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble this morning, but that is a very American dream version of heaven, okay? The point in this text is not the size or look of the mansions that we are going to have in heaven. All of that pales in comparison with this reality that in the Father's house, we are with Jesus. That's the point in this text. That's why he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you myself, and where I am, there you may be also. The greatest treasure of heaven is not the comfort of your mattress. It's not the abundance of food. It's not the size of your yard. It is the fact that you are with Jesus, and in his presence, every longing of your heart is fulfilled. There's no more crying or pain or death. There's no more cancer. There's no more depression. There's no more anxiety. Because our hearts have found our home with Him for eternity. That's what it's talking about in this passage. Jesus says, This is what I go and prepare a place for you. The second question I have about this text is what does it mean that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us? I think oftentimes when I've heard that passage, I kind of picture Jesus with a construction house. And while I'm here living, he's up in heaven and he's kind of renovating. He's hammering away. He's, he's preparing this place for me. Again, that, this is the point. It's kind of like uh, people talk about Jesus as the greater Adam or the greater Moses. That would be like Jesus is the greater Chip and Joanna Gaines and Fixer Upper if you knew you liked that show. That's not the way Jesus is talking about. 
When he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, the context of this verse, think about this. Where is he going in the next moments? He's going to the cross. And so when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, what he's saying is this, I'm preparing a place by taking care of the one thing that is necessary for you to be brought home. And that is the forgiveness of your words. When he says, I'm preparing a place, he's talking about the reality that he's about to go on the cross and take the punishment of sin that each one of us deserves. He's about to take that upon himself. He says, I'm preparing a place. I'm making a way for you so that you can be reconnected to God, so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can have spiritual life and you can live in this eternal home with me forever. Friends, it is crucial to understand this. You do not have what it takes to prepare a place for yourself in heaven. You don't. You don't have what it takes. You think about this whole college admissions scandal that has been all over the news this week. You look at that, you think, how foolish that they would pay for a place in that prestigious university. But how foolish are we to think that we can prepare a place for us by our good works, by, by paying God off, is what this is what we're saying. If I'm just good enough, if I do enough good things, if I'm charitable enough, if I go to church enough, if I do all this service, if I, my good outweighs if I've been, I'm earning my way to heaven. Is that not foolish? God looks at us, Jesus looks at us, and he says, no, no, you can't prepare a place for yourself. I am the one that must go prepare a place for you. Only I have lived a sinless life. Only I can die and cross for you. That's exactly what Jesus has done. Which then leads to Thomas's question in verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can you know the way? You're going to love Thomas. Thomas reminds me of my son Brady. Brady is as little as they come. Thomas hears Jesus is going. I have to find him, so what does he do? Give me directions, Jesus. Let me know where this place is. How, how did you get there? What's the way? It leads to Jesus' response, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. In those moments where we are having troubled hearts, we must trust and promise Jesus. He's going to prepare a place. His, he is the place that, we turn, that our hearts long for. And number two, we must trust the person of Jesus and Him and who He is. One of the things I find interesting in our culture is that almost anybody I talk to that, that knows about Jesus, regardless of their faith, almost all people like Jesus. You talk to people, and they may not like Christians, they may not like certain parts of Christianity, but they like Jesus. When they talk about it, they talk about his love and his kindness. They talk about how he championed the cause of the poor and the needy, how he was friends with the marginalized, the downtrodden, how he loved his enemies and taught others to do the same. People around the world, they like Jesus if they know about Jesus. I want you to see here that the claims that Jesus makes doesn't leave liking him as an option. So many people, when they, they take some of Jesus and they, you look at the real Jesus, if, if you believe what, that he said these words, then you have two options. You have to believe he is who he says he is and worship him, make him the Lord of your life, or you have to reject him as a raging lunatic. Because what is Jesus saying in this passage? 
He's saying, I am the only way of salvation. I am God. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except for me. This is an incredibly exclusive statement. And that's just what Jesus is doing here is he's destroying this whole popular theory that all religions are equally valid and are going in the same direction. I think for many of us, we have this view of humanity where we're all kind of standing at the bottom of the mountain and God is at the top of the mountain or whatever you want to call them. And they say, here's the thing. You take your path. I'll take my path. Up the mountain, there are many different trails, but they're all pretty much going in the same place. So if you're born in India, be Hindu. If you're born in Turkey, be Muslim. If you're born in the Philippines, be Roman Catholic. If you're born in Texas, be an evangelical Christian. It doesn't matter. It's really a matter of preference and tradition more than it, than it really matters because they're all going to the same place. Jesus here says that statement couldn't be any further than the truth. Jesus says, I alone can bring you the forgiveness that you need to reconnect your relationship to God. I alone am truth. I alone can bring you from spiritual death to spiritual darkness. There is no other way except for me. You see, this is the statement that sets Jesus apart from every other religious leader. You look at all the other religions, and the religious leaders, what do they do? They point the way to life. They point the way to God. So you have Muhammad, he points the way to the Quran. Right? It's what he points to. Joseph Smith points to the Book of Mormon. Uh, Buddha points to rules and regulations that you can follow. Hinduism, they point the way, right? But what does Jesus do? He doesn't point to the way. He doesn't say, here's what you have to do to get to God. What does he say? I am the way. He says, it's not about pointing the way. You have to come to me. It's in personal relationship with me that you will find life and truth. It's incredible news. Jesus, for instance, has done everything we need to come back into a connection to the Father. He is the one that can give us spiritual life. But what do we do? We say, well, Jesus, that's not fair. Why can't there be moral things? I would submit to you that's the wrong question. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed if there is a way at all. You think about the reality. He created us. We are his creation. And yet instead of loving him and worshiping and walking with him, what do we do? He said, Jesus, I don't need you. I don't want your kingship over my life. I want to do life as I want to do it. So we've gone our own way in the Bible says every one of us has gone our own way. We've strayed from him. The fact that there is one way to him is amazing grace. And yet he has done everything we need. This is incredible for our eternity, but friends, it's also incredible for our present. Because what does it say? Not only is Jesus the way, but he is the truth. How many of you need truth in your life? You've looked at your life and you've kind of done all these different things that you think are right, but none of them end up how you want. Maybe you believe in the truth. But what does he also say? I am the life. When a person comes to know Jesus, just like we observe in these baptisms, when a person comes to know Jesus personally, when he becomes their Savior and Lord, he doesn't just leave them like they always were. The Bible says he changes them from the inside out. He changes their character. He gives them spiritual life. They have spiritual power. They have the ability to fight against sin. They have comfort and joy and peace. 
Even if it's not full like they'll experience in eternity, they begin to experience the kingdom right now. You look at the Bible and it gives us many instances where Jesus meets people with the same longings you have. Longings for peace and joy and comfort and all these different things. He comes across a woman at the well who had numerous husbands and yet found herself alone. She'll listen to what Jesus says to her. He says, everyone who drinks this water, it's talking about the well of water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How many of you have a spring of water welling up into eternal life through Jesus? Jesus comes to a crowd of hungry people. Listen to what he says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's talking about contentment. He comes to a people surrounded by a dark world. What does he say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness to have the light of life. Over and over again, what does he say? I am the source of these things. And John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to steal from the story. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Friends, you are looking for life in all the wrong places. If you are looking for joy and contentment and peace from any other source than in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you may find it in a temporary way, but it will not be last. When your circumstances change, all those are going to be out of your right with those circumstances. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Those that follow him experience a different kind of life, which leads us to our last time. Not only do we trust in the promises of Jesus when we have troubled hearts, not only do we go to the, the person of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the last, we have to trust in the power and provision that only Jesus can give. You look at verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask for in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do. You see, Jesus knew that the mission of the disciples was just beginning. With his death and resurrection, their mission is just beginning. And so he tells them from this point so that after his resurrection, they would get it. You're going to do greater things than you see me do. And that's always been a little confusing to me. Has it not confused you a little bit? What does it mean that we're going to do greater things? Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus calmed storms. Are we really going to do greater things than that? Well, here's what Jesus means by that. Jesus means when I go to the Father, he's saying that in my death and resurrection, when that happens, I am ushering in a new age that no one has experienced before. The age of my kingdom, the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, sins will be forgiven. In the kingdom of God, people who are disconnected from God will be brought back into relationship. In the kingdom of God, people will be able to battle against sin because my word won't just be written, it'll be written on my hearts. My spirit, which dwelled in a temple, will now dwell in a man. As he looks at his disciples, he says, You are going to be the initiators to experience the kingdom of God. The power that is available in walking with me. You're going to do greater things. Jesus' ministry, as great as it was, was limited to a small region of the world. And it was veiled. Even the disciples were around him, they didn't fully get it. But Jesus says, After my death and resurrection, all of this will be clear. And you are going to be my ambassadors. 
through your words and through your actions, we're going to be ambassadors to my kingdom, doing great works and seeking the gospel, dying the way of truth and life. That's what he's getting at here. He's speaking to what he's going to do in and through them. But here's the reality. I think many of us in this room struggle with a troubled heart at times because we are not sold out to the same mission that Jesus has given his disciples. We're so consumed with ourselves and our own mission, our own desire to, to rise the, the ladder, whatever sphere of life we're in, our own ambitions, our own preferences, we're so consumed with those things that we've totally lost sight of this Jesus who has said, you're going to do greater works than I can. You have kingdom power. The promise none of us are lying Instead, we rely on ourselves. We do our own thing. I believe, church, that this is something we have to repent of. If you don't want to have a troubled heart, it's going to begin by saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm committed to your mission. And as I live out that mission, what does Jesus say? Ask whatever you wish, and I will do it to you. Ask whatever you want in my name, and I will do it. Now, is Jesus saying that we can be treated like a genie? No. If just by saying in the name of Jesus after any prayer we want, that doesn't mean we'll automatically get what we want. To pray in Jesus' name means this. It means to pray according to the will of God. To pray prayers that, that our ultimate aim is that God would be glorified, that Jesus would be known. To pray prayers that his kingdom would come, his will would come. He says, when you live and pray in this way, when you rely on me in prayer, I will hear you and I will answer you. I'll provide everything you need to live out this mission that I've given you. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No. Paul was uh, shipwrecked, beaten, thrown in jail. Again, is Paul's joy ever gone? No. Why? Because Jesus' mission is the primary thing in his life. I ask you today, is Jesus' mission the primary thing of your life? Do you rely on his power and his provision every single day? Or do you rely on your own? I'm so grateful as we look at this text that Jesus doesn't come to us when we have troubled hearts and say, hey, things could be worse. He doesn't do that. Jesus says, no, the problems you're facing, they're very real. In this fallen world broken by sin, they're very real. But here's the thing. The only possible way to deal with a troubled heart is to continuously, daily, moment by moment, trust in me. Believe in God. Believe also in Trust in his promise, trust in his person, trust in his power and his provision. So this morning, I want to close with a very simple question. should be very clear to you by this point. As you come into this room, are you trusting in Jesus? Truly. Is the object of your trust in him, on his promise, in his person, in his power and provision? Or have you placed your trust on something that is fleeting, it's passing away, it's moving up and down? I hope you'll be honest with God this morning. You come in today with a troubled heart. My hope is that you will run to Jesus today. For some of you, that means running to Jesus for the very first time. You've lived your life apart from Him. Like all of us in this room, you live for yourself. But today, I hope you'll see that you can do that all you want, but you're not preparing for yourself a place, an eternal home. You're not experiencing life like God has called you to live and designed for you to live a life to the fullest. That only comes through Jesus. I pray for you today is that you turn from your own ways and turn and put your trust in Jesus. Believing in his death on the cross 
can bring you into a restored relationship with the Father. But I also realize that many of you who do know Jesus also walk into this room with a very troubled heart. I was really impacted last week by Mike's sermon. He talked about loving one another in a tangible, visible way. And so this morning, we're going to move into a response time, but we're going to do something a little bit different. Normally, we just need you time to just pray about yourself, but as the body of Christ, I think this is an opportunity for us to live out this command to love one another in a very tangible way. I'm going to ask two things this morning. Number one, I'm going to ask that those of you that come into this room with a troubled heart, that you be transparent about that. I know that's hard. I know it requires laying down your pride, being willing to say, you know what, I have a troubled heart, but in order for us to love each other well, we have to be vulnerable. We have to say, you know what, I am struggling with a troubled heart. The second thing I want to ask is this, that we as the body of Christ would, would surround those people and just simply pray for them. Pray that Jesus would meet them in their trouble. That they would have the strength to trust in the power and the person and the provision and promise of Jesus. And so this morning, in a prayerful attitude this morning, I just want to ask this question. I'm just asking you right here. How many of you in this room came in today with a troubled heart? Just be honest. Pray for him. Yeah, many around the world. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to leave your hand raised. Okay, I know that's a vulnerable thing to do. I promise you're not alone in this room. Leave your hand raised. And in church, for those of you that are sitting around those individuals that have their hand raised, I just want you to get up. And I just want you to put your hand on your shoulder. I just want for the next five minutes, first just to pray for you. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't feel comfortable doing that. You may pray silently. If you feel comfortable praying out loud, do that. But in this moment, I want us to be a church family. And you know what a family does? When one person is going through something, the rest of the family rallies around. They pray for you. And so that's what we're going to do today. So right now, if you would, just raise your hand in the church family. Let's gather around these individuals. And let's spend the next few minutes just praying for them. I'll come to close that moment in just a second. 